You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad. Yeah. Who's your favorite character of all the stories we've told last year? I know there's many. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think it would have to be Doug Conant oh. from Campbell Soup. Yeah, same here. <laughs> <laughs> I just learned so much from doing that episode. Yeah. It's just incredible. The person that he is is just very unique and special. Yeah, and as you know, I reached out to him on LinkedIn and we started like, chatting. So he's not up in the cloud. He's <laughs> a very down-to-earth, normal, reachable human being. And that's what makes it even more interesting for me. Yeah, that's just who he is. Exactly. And that's why he had that amazing comeback, because of features like that or aspects of that. So this is part two of our 2020 wrap-up. And I think we have to do episode 11, which is the comeback nobody saw coming, which is Campbell's Soup of Doug. And I would like to lead with that because it's one of my favorite episodes. So uh, let's just jump into that. Campbell's is one of the most iconic brands in America, and it was founded in 1869. They are headquartered in Camden, New Jersey, and they must probably have one of the most recognizable brands or logos in the whole world. The design of Campbell's soup hasn't really changed since 1898. Andy Warhol actually used the tomato soup can, as everybody's probably seen, to create one of his most recognizable artworks. And for now, that's like 50 years old, if you think about it. It's just crazy. In itself, that painting is a statement about modern American culture. Mm. And we're talking about soup here, right? <laughs> it's just yeah. really interesting the way that it became part of the American culture. So nothing is more iconic or a more iconic symbol of American progress in the post-World War II era than Campbell's Soup. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But by the 80s and the 90s, Campbell's was actually on this path of decline. Yeah, Sales were down, the market for pre-prepared foods was getting just really crowded because the microwave was changing everything. Conagra Food launched. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a lot going on within yeah. consumer packaged goods and, and specifically within kind of pre-prepared meals. Yeah. You could heat all these things up in the microwave. Progresso actually starts to come out. And so now Campbell's has some competition from some really strong competitors that were just putting a lot of pressure on. And Campbell's was just really suffering a massive decline. Yeah. So by the early 2000s, Campbell was trying to reignite their brands and Campbell put their energy into a tighter brand presence and focusing on their core three brands, which is Campbell Soup, VA Juice or VA Juices and Pepperidge Farms Baked Goods. So I think this is like the key inflection point of today's story. They really invested into new leadership in 2001 they hired somebody with the name Douglas Conant as their new CEO. And with former strategy leadership roles at General Mills, Kraft, and Nabisco, this was his first CEO role. And he had a really tough job ahead of him. So in a 2012 article for strategybusiness.com by Art Kleiner, Doug Conant said, In the year before I arrived, the company had lost half its market value. It had gone from $60 to $30 per share. The leadership team had tried to grow and diversify in unproductive ways. 
the board felt a change was clearly needed. We did a survey of employee engagement soon after I arrived. For every two people engaged in the work, one was looking for another job. In other words, about 6,000 of our 20,000 employees were actively dissatisfied. I had been in toxic environments before, but they were nothing compared to what we encountered at Campbell. So he focused on the company's assets, which is super amazing and, and really smart. It's a very iconic brand, right? As we all know, mm-hmm. he has a hugely skilled workforce, a very big giant consumer base, and a ton of historical equity and brand loyalty and awareness. Yeah. So those are the four components that he focused on. At most companies, if you have something like employee engagement or culture, it becomes like an initiative. And then, you know, you set up a committee and then that committee goes and organizes some events and some happy hours. And And they meet once a month. Yeah. Right. To plan out some activities or community service or whatever. Right. And he took an entirely different approach in that he really took personal accountability for it. So there's this cool quote in a Guardian article where he said, as introverts, we assume everyone knows what we're thinking but people aren't mind readers. I had to go out on a limb and talk about my vision for going forward in an uncomfortable way. I needed to get out there and tell them that we were taking the company to higher ground. We were going to get the workplace and the marketplace right. I think every CEO needs to do that in a smart way. So he talks about introducing this concept of Campbell's valuing people and people valuing Campbell's, that you make this really big investment in the company and in the people. And then in turn, he wanted them to make a big investment back into Campbell's, but he had to show them first. So from a second perspective is the people and leadership training. He personally ran, this is incredible, a leadership development course for two years And he required his leaders to attend five sessions for up to three days each. Wow. Just think about that running a company. Yeah. And they had a lot of homework that they had to do and a lot of reading. And they had to get a personal coach to really work on their leadership style. I mean, I can think of a lot of the companies that I've been a part of and a lot of companies that I've interacted with. You can barely get a day to get all the leadership out, right? Oh, man. Yeah. Everybody is swamped. And there would be... I can tell a lot of resistance from people who kind of think, hey, man, I've arrived. I'm already in senior leadership. I am a leader. Why do I need this leadership course and submitting homework? Yeah. I'm an SVP. I'm a this, I'm a that. You fill in the blank, right? And I'm not going to do this leadership course and five sessions and homework every day that's like graded like I'm in school again. No, thanks. Yeah. But- Doug really took this super seriously. He thought this was like super important. So he said that people would send in their homework and I would try to get back to them in 24 hours. It was the single most important thing I did. I wanted them to go out and lead in a more inspired way. How could we be a higher ambition company if we didn't have higher ambition leaders? So he goes so far as to write 10 to 20 handwritten personal notes to employees at all levels of the organization. So this isn't just like, you know, people that he's on a daily basis in these executive level leadership meetings with. It's people at all levels of the organization to recognize people who are performing well because they are going through a difficult time. 
a time of change and he wants to encourage the right behaviors. So let's listen to Doug actually tell the story himself. This is from an interview back in March of this year with Gary Vee. We had to make some real tough decisions. Let go 300 of the top 350 leaders. <laughs> Never been done in Fortune 500 history. At the same time, we had all these people doing good work. So I started writing 10 to 20 short notes a day to employees. I was commuting two and a half hours each way from New Jersey down to Camden, from Morris County down mm -hmm. to Camden. I started uh, reading all the stuff that was going on in the company and I would write notes to these folks. 10 to 20 a day, six days a week for a decade. I was, when I was retiring, the person from Forbes said, how many of these, I'm hearing all about all these notes from everybody. How many notes have you written? I said, I don't know. So we did the math during the interview. We did the math and figured out just the Campbell employees. I'd written 30,000 notes. We only had 20,000 employees. Man, that's just amazing stuff, right? <laughs> Again, so many CEOs, so many leadership people will say that they invest in their people, but this is taking it a lot further than that. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, 30,000. 30,000 most, <laughs> yeah. The third thing that he did was really think of the community of where the headquarters were. Again, Camden during the time was, was not a good spot. So over the years, companies actually left Camden, but he decided that he wanted to stay and he wanted to invest in the community. So he created a very ambitious plan to actually make the town of Camden a better place. Mm. He invested into the big picture, into the quality of life for people in and outside of work. And he helped employees feel happier and more fulfilled despite the state of the company and, and the town of Camden where they were at the time. And he has a really good quote. We have approached the challenge differently. We have chosen to get deeply involved in improving the well-being of children in Camden. So he focused on the health and nutrition of children, and he actually launched a project, a 10-year-long project, to half the BMI, the body mass index, of 23,000 children in Camden. Wow. And this project's still going on today after he's you know, no longer with the company. They brought nutritionists into schools and had Campbell chefs work with parents to serve healthy foods for kids at home. This is amazing, right? Wow, that is both beautiful and extremely ambitious. It's incredible, yeah. <laughs> he focused on things that aren't directly correlated to performance or an ROI of an organization, right? The culture, the people, and the community are usually afterthoughts. They're the soft things that leadership usually drives into organization. They don't very often lead with it. And the combined impact is that there's a company that people are just so incredibly proud to work for and that they feel like showing up every day is assisting in building this legacy and building their own community. Campbell sales totally turned around. Profits grew for eight straight years while Doug Conant was CEO. They just generated amazing performance and his philosophy that really made it work ultimately is that he believed that change was more than just one dimensional. It's not just a simple answer. He said in a 2013 Forbes article that, quote, we need to reach employees on four levels. People need to make a living. They need to feel loved. They need to learn. And they needed to feel like they were part of something special and leave a legacy behind. Hitting on those four cylinders, we were able to create a very powerful culture. 
And I think the key to this whole thing is that it was truly sincere. This wasn't an initiative. This wasn't a committee. This wasn't delegated. He led by example, and he recognized that relationships with people are what builds that strength. And so that was the core focus of his marketing, I guess you could say. It was, it was relationship marketing. It was word of mouth, very direct one-to-one. And he really believed that leadership wasn't kind of like this destination that to be a good leader, you have to work at it. So this is a common theme that we have identified in rescues and comebacks is a level of humility to understand as a leader that you haven't arrived. There's always something to learn. There's always things to work on. There are always ways to get better. He saw his business as an agent for good in the world, and he believed that understanding that was the key to this turnaround. He put people first, and he really, really believed that the results will follow. Oh, super good stuff. Just love the story about him. So we just talked about one of the greatest examples of strong business ethics and doing the right thing in marketing. Yeah. What's maybe your most poignant example that we've covered of doing the wrong thing in marketing? Hmm. I think it's a, sure, it's a tough question. I think it's a toss-up for me between um, Jewel, the one where they were marketing towards children and basically just lying about it and getting young kids to get hooked on tobacco. And I think they were like 11, 10-year-olds, right? It's just ridiculous. (laughs) And as a father of a child that lost his first tooth today at six, it just really hurt inside hearing that story. Yeah that there are big corporations out there using billions of dollars and marketing tactics to basically destroy kids' lives for profit. So that's definitely one. I think it was episode 13. All right. Well, let's take a listen to the time history caught up with greed. In 2005, two Stanford students developed a new e-cigarette product they called Plume. In Mm. 2007... They form a company to manufacture and sell their e-cigarettes, but it took them a little while to get going. And eight years later, they changed the name of their product and their company. The company became Pax Labs and the e-cigarette. You want to take a stab at guessing the name, Nico? Jewel. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It was Jewel. So in the summer of 2015, Founders Adam Bowen and James Monsies launched the Jewel electronic cigarette brand. In fall of 2017, the newly named Jewel Labs had 200 employees. And by the end of the following year, they had 1,500 employees. So the company is valued at $15 billion at this time, following a $650 million investment round. Sure. In December 2018, Jewel sold 35% of the company to Altria one of the world's largest manufacturers of cigarettes, formerly known as Philip Morris Company. And this 35%, they sold for $12.8 billion. The more money companies make, the more greedy they tend to get. And by the end of 2017, Juul was the most popular e-cigarette in America. A year later, Juul controlled 72% of the entire e-cigarette market, which is massive. 
public sentiment was growing in favor of e-cigarettes as a helpful and potentially less harmful alternative to smoking, because smoking is still a huge problem in the US. But US regulatory agencies, including the FDA, had significant concerns about who exactly was using this product. And that's where the cookie starts to crumble. An October 2018 study found that 9.5% of teenagers the age of 15 to 17 and 11% of young adults ages 18 to 21 were actively using Juul. So just think about that for a mm. second. That's 10% of all kids between the age of 15 and 17 mm. are using their product. And that teenagers 17 to 15 were 16 times more likely to be Juul users than 25 and 34 year olds. The same study said that one in five students between the age of 12 and 17 had seen Juul being used in their school. Mm. So these kids were actually starting to use the word Juuling to describe e-cigarette use. So it's very similar to like Q-Tex, nail polish. They turn the brand name into a verb, and the only time that happens is when it's getting used over and over and over that they associate that with. So why were kids increasingly using Juul? I have to admit, when I first kind of saw Juul in particular, I actually thought because of the way that they were marketed that there was nicotine-free versions Yeah, because so many kids were using them. And that's like the whole crux of why this is is so crazy is that they didn't know what the risks were and still marketed them as if they did know what the risks were and marketed them as a supposedly safer alternative to cigarettes. So their early marketing efforts, just to kind of paint the picture, is they're using a lot of digital media, especially social media. They have these images and themes with young people and they spend thousands of dollars to promote Juul as a smoking cessation tool to kids in schools. Children as young as eight years old were targeted by Juul online and through summer camps, according to a congressional investigation. The company spent more than $200,000 to sponsor so-called wellness camps. Summer camps. Seriously? <laughs> summer camps. Oh, man, that's horrible. Yeah. Oh, man. Dr. Robert Jackler, a Stanford University researcher who co-founded a group that really rolls with your tongue, the Stanford Research into the Impact of Tobacco Advertising, or the acronym also rolls with your tongue, STRITA, <laughs> STRITA. <laughs> they, they, they really, really dug into this. And they maintained an archive of all Jules' deleted social media posts. And I say deleted because Jules deleted at this point all their social media accounts two and a half thousand tweets 400 facebook posts and instagram posts and this is definitely a theme that we see on the show about when a company starts deleting their social media platforms and their content something's up right we've seen that <laughs> multiple times right now yes so material from jules websites emails print campaigns dating back all the way to 2015 and jackler said that they clearly targeted the youth especially in the early 2015 and 2016, they used attractive models socializing and sharing the Juul device. A Forbes article by Kendrit Kaya says Juul contracted advertising agency Grit Creative Group to identify social media influencers aiming to recruit users with at least 30,000 followers to establish a network of creatives to leverage as loyalists. 
for its brand, according to an internal email. And when we think of who is being influenced by influencers on social media, right. who are those? Old people trying to quit smoking or... <laughs> But I think the thing that really shocked me when I was doing the research for this is this Instagram ad that we found. Why don't you talk us through that? Yeah. So this is actual copy from an actual influencer ad that actually triggered a lawsuit from the Massachusetts Attorney General. And it reads, Mom, it's a USB drive. It is just sinister. But luckily, in the US, we have the FDA that come after yes. people like this and my wife listened to the Purdue episode the other day and she asked me, why did the FDA not do anything? <laughs> it was just, you know, and, and it's very similar here as well. The FDA yeah. didn't come down to the aggression that I would have expected from them in this circumstance. Right. And I think we see the FDA start to step in in this situation in 2017, which I think was also late to the game. Yeah. And it's still an ongoing situation where there's still ongoing back and forth with Juul. But as there starts to be this outcry from parents who are starting to really have a lot of problems with their kids because of this, you know, there's multiple lawsuits that are now being filed by parents of underage users claiming that the company is deceptively marketing the products as safe and targeting underage users and also targeting non-smokers, which is a big part of calling Juul's bluff on their messaging. And they claim that Juul is as addictive or even more addictive mm. than cigarettes. So part of this is that Juul's proprietary nicotine salt formula enables higher nicotine absorption into the body than traditional cigarettes or other e-cigarettes that use nicotine liquid. Mm. So not only <laughs> is it marketed to people who wouldn't normally have developed nicotine addictions or had any sort of relationship with nicotine, but it's a more addictive form. In 2019, Juul agreed to make changes to its youth advertising practices as part of a settlement with the Center of Environmental Health. It states that the center can sue Juul if they violate any portion of the agreement. The agreement states that Juul will not, and there's like a few different things, advertise or promote its products in media with audiences that are 15% or more under the age of 21, markets or advertise on social media except Juul's age-restricted YouTube channel. So hang on. So they can still promote its products to children as long as not 15% or more of the audience's children? They just can't get caught. And if they get caught, they might get sued. We have the option to potentially yeah. do something about it, but we're not really committing to anything. It's a little bit of a gag order. You know, if you do this, this might happen. That's interesting. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, basically they say that they are not supposed to use models under the age of 28 and that they cannot advertise within a thousand feet of schools or playgrounds. <laughs> because or, apparently or summer, that or, was a thing. Yeah, or summer camps. It's <laughs> oh, ridiculous. Man, it's crazy. So you can't sponsor or advertise at sporting events or concerts that allow people under the age of 21. You can't pay for or permit company employees or contractors to appear at school or youth-oriented educational programs. This really sounds like a joke, doesn't it? Just the fact that this is even needed, right? Yeah. You can't continue to use the terms adults only 
or not for use by minors, which actually has been shown to entice minors to use Juul products. And they have to replace that with the phrase, the sale of tobacco products to minors is prohibited by law. So early last year, Juul announced a $10 million advertising campaign targeting current adult smokers and trying to rebrand Juul as a product to help people switch. In March, Juul started pitching itself to employers and insurers to help their employees stop smoking cigarettes. This enterprise-level B2B campaign offers discounts and personal coaching along with support videos to participants. In September, the US FDA warned Juul to stop its deceptive marketing practices. Stop, stop, stop. They warned them. They warned them. They got a warning. After all this, after all this stuff, all the marketing, the lawsuits, the FDA warned them. September of 2019. It's, I don't know, man. I don't know. We work with the FDA a lot, and it's such a laborious process to send our creative through it. And, you know, there are hoops we jump through, and you've got a company that blatantly markets to children, and they get a warning. So, man, what have we learned? I feel like we've just been rambling and bashing it, but this is important. The reason why we want to talk about this is because I do think there's some things to learn about this. From a marketing perspective, I think if you don't learn from your past, you're just dead in the water. It's just so funny to me, like the market research we do when we launch brands or when we have huge, massive campaigns is so strong. It plays such a big impact on our strategies that we come up with. So I'm just surprised they just completely ignored that. And again, I just think that it's just purely based on greed. They were starting to make so much money and they just wanted to get more and more and more. And then the final thing for me is don't market to kids, period. This is such a horrible, horrible, horrible people <laughs> for doing that. It's just <laughs> disgusting. Uh, I'm just speechless knowing that there are people out there that will take profit over the well-being of, of little children. Well, and to that point, you mentioned another episode that really stuck out to you. Which one was that? Yeah, that's the other kids one. <laughs> the, I think it was episode 15, the tactic that shouldn't be used. It wasn't specifically towards a brand or a comeback. It was just the ins and outs legalities regarding marketing to kids and children. And mm. that I think we both concluded towards the end that it should just not be used at all. But you're asking a proud dad here. So obviously I'm going to pick two kids-oriented things. <laughs> I'm sure there were other ones as well. Yeah, you always go in the kids and family direction. That's good though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's definitely my, between that and Jewel with my two ones that I, my stomach was turning a little bit doing the research for it. No doubt. All right, well, let's listen to the tactic that shouldn't be used. This was episode 15. In this episode, we're going to be going a little bit deeper into this phenomenon and then also the ethics of marketing to kids. I remember growing up, Saturday morning cartoons was like this big thing in the 80s. And they were packed with commercials about Tony the Tiger, Frosted Flakes, and G.I. Joes, and just about anything you could imagine for kids. And even today, still, if you have cable TV and you're on Nickelodeon or you're on Cartoon Network or whatever it is, you're still going to get 
commercial interruptions. That's part of the problem. In the US, they had laws, but they weren't necessarily governed or policed as well. So between the mm. 1940s and 1980s, advertisements to children were limited by the FCC. They weren't really policed by the FCC. They were policed by a group called ACTS, which is Actions of Children's Television. And this was an independent group, and they actually had a number of about 20,000 members. And they did things like threaten to report the show like Rumpers Room to the FCC for violating when they marketed their own line of toys endorsed by the hosts. And in the 1980s, ads were flourishing thanks to the Reagan administration, which disliked the regulation of any kind. So many shows, including Hot Wheels series, Pac-Man cartoons, or He-Man, Masters of the Universe, were basically a full-length commercial. And they were produced by toy manufacturers that were marketing these product line to kids through like a 45-minute infomercial. Yeah. And so for me... That's just it, right? Yes. Growing up in the US, in that environment, that's basically how everything was. Cultural historian Tom Engelhart states that between the years of 1984 and 85, cartoons featuring licensed characters increased by over 300%. Wow. By the end of 1985, there were more than 40 animated series with tie-ins to licensed products or campaigns. And I mean, who of us hasn't bought their daughter a Disney princess? I haven't pajamas, I've not. their kid, a Batman or a Captain America t-shirt or toy, right? Like no, it's right. everywhere and it's for all of us. So as a result, millions of action figures start selling in the eighties, you know, everything from some of my favorites like Transformers and Batman. And then of course, things like My Little Pony were sold to kids through those years. And the shows were some of the most popular in TV history because you can kind of like experience the show yeah. through play. In 1990, the Children's TV Act was passed, which tightened the rules on advertising to kids. The act not only tightened rules, but it also mandated the creation of educational programming for kids as part of broadcasters license renewals. What about the rules for actually marketing in the United States? Yeah, so the United States simply has not kept up for the rest of the world in terms of the implementation of science-based standards for marketing to kids. Yeah. You know, many other countries have taken a lot of steps. Yeah, for example, banning fast food marketing to kids under the age of 13, restricting ads aimed at children for foods that are like really high in calories, sugar, Fructose, yeah. yeah, candy, treats, all of that kind of stuff, banning the use of cartoons or toys to market unhealthy foods, which we market a ton out of. Yeah, and that's part of the reason why there's a massive obesity pandemic. Yeah, and then also requiring educational labels on ads for unhealthy foods. Yeah, most of the controversy around marketing to kids centers around health, nutrition, and obesity, like we just mm. discussed. In 2010, the WHO, the World Health Organization, specifically called on member nations to reduce the impact of marketing of foods high in saturated fats, sugar, salts, to children. I mean, it's it just, again, why would we be doing this to begin with? <laughs> right. Well, capitalism. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so not only is direct marketing to kids as big as a problem as it's ever been, the ways in which online marketing tracks the user's behavior across all multiple platforms right. is just 
borderline sometimes a little bit creepy right <laughs> yeah and it's hyper targeted ads to children to your point right now and that actually makes me think we should do an episode on online tracking and when it works and when it doesn't work similar to this format we're doing today yeah i think it might be a really good interesting episode to do too but anyway in 2019 two senators proposed legislation that would ban ads targeted towards kids across online platforms and that's last year, just put it in perspective, because <laughs> it's 2019, right? And it gives parents what they called an eraser button that removes all tracking data about their children's online habits. Senators Ed Markley of Massachusetts and Josh Howley of Missouri proposed changes to COPA, and COPA is the Children Online Privacy Protection Act. They would define a set of parental controls and ban targeted advertising to young minors. So the bill cited an FTC fine for TikTok's parent company for $5.7 million for collecting the personal data of children under 13 without receiving the consent of their parents. It's just crazy. The bill would increase current protections from 13 to 15 years old and prohibit serving targeted ads for kids under 13. The bill is actually still under review in the Senate. Okay, so that's the first half of today's episode. That's, that's the legality. That's the... Act one. Act one, right. <laughs> that's what the laws prescribe advertisers and marketers to do. So yeah. let's shift the focus now. Far from when or how we might be advertising to kids, let's take a look at whether we should be allowed to do so. Yeah, so, I mean... First of all, right, like let's just call a spade a spade. Advertising, even if you're advertising something good and positive, right, it's still inherently manipulative in a sense. And non marketers will debate that, but marketers know that. <laughs> yes, we all know that yeah. what you're trying to do is get somebody to, to do, do something, something, to either change their behavior in some sort of way, perceive something differently, buy a certain product. But the problem is, is that in marketing, we assume that our audience has their own critical thinking capabilities, that they can make decisions about whether those actions are good or healthy or safe for them. But kids just don't have those critical thinking skills and capabilities, just hasn't developed in their brains yet. They don't have life perspective. They can't judge for themselves. So how could it ever be ethical to provide potentially manipulative message to someone who doesn't have the cognitive ability to judge and assess that message, its merits, and its basis in reality. Stop marketing to kids.ca is a Canadian website has some really cool insights on this. Children are uniquely vulnerable to marketing. And they go on to say, before the age of five, most children cannot distinguish ads from unbiased programming. I know that very well because mm. I live with a five-year-old. Yeah. I mean, they're like impulsive, <laughs> right? They like they totally. latch on to the smallest little thing. Children under the age of eight do not understand the intent of marketing messaging and they believe what they see. Right. And by the age of 10 to 12, children understand they're seeing ads that's designed to sell out products to them, but they are not always able to be critical of these ads. So they're still very, very much influenced by it. You're not just marketing a product, you're having an impact on who that person is at that impressionable age. If you think about it, what they think is right and acceptable. Yep what they think and feel about themselves, 
what they want to feel about life and what they want to strive for. This is all a very powerful medium and the effects can be long lasting. The things that they're exposed to right now stays with them for the years to come. Yeah. That includes marketing and includes marketing messaging. In the onset, it's wrong because when we market, we do research, right? And we try to get into the minds of our target audience. Right. We figure out what type of messages is going to provoke that action we want them to take. Yes. So that's the core of marketing. Yes. So that's why this is a problem because right. it's not you can change the fundamental mechanics of marketing when you market to kids because then it's no longer marketing, right? If you think about it. <laughs> right. How do we market ethically to children then? when they're involved? Is that even possible? So that's a great question. And I think like most things in life, it's not quite as black and white as it would seem. And it's more shades of gray. And the example that I want to bring out to demonstrate that is as a kid growing up, one of my favorite TV shows was Reading Rainbow. And for those of you who didn't grow up in the US and didn't grow up in the 80s, Reading Rainbow is this amazing show by a guy named LeVar Burton who wanted to help kids just gain a love for reading because he knew how many positive impacts and how much value that would have on, on kids' lives. And so the show, the way the show works is it starts out and every episode, LeVar Burton kind of introduces the theme for the episode and then they read a children's book and they recommend that children's book. And then they go and have some sort of educational experience. And I remember this one episode very like vividly. It was about how crayons are made. It was very educational, but that was an advertisement. You go to the factory and you see how Crayola makes their crayons. Right. And that's an advertisement, but it's also educational. And then they read another story and they also have a section of the show that there's kids that do their own kind of like recommendations of what books they like, which is an advertisement for those books, for those authors who are going to make money off of the sales of those books. So you can argue that's marketing, it's terrible, it's manipulative, but it's also one of the things that I credit for my positive development, my love of learning, my love of reading. And there are so many positive aspects of my life that I actually attribute to that one particular series reading rainbow i can still remember the the jingle yeah, in, yeah. in my head right but it is a slippery slope though right because if you allow marketing to kids somebody's going to take advantage of it that's the problem right so i think it's this a double-edged sword yeah i think there are a few key takeouts that we can keep in mind when you do this first of all from my perspective speak to the parents not the kids Ultimately, the parents are going to make the purchase decisions. Don't shortcut parents and try to manipulate kids. What you just described didn't sound like they were trying to manipulate you to go and do something. The core program was around reading and they try to make it interesting. Make safety features and privacy features obvious and super transparent. Yeah, and it's really important, I think, with that to take the long-term view. What is the impact that this is going to have? Not that if you hook them now, you'll have them forever, like the cigarette companies and Jewel did. Jewel, yeah. But if you build trust with parents and kids now, you'll win loyalty in the future. Really, kids impact parents' purchasing decisions. That's just a fact, right? Like when your kids tug on your arm and want to go to their favorite restaurant or whatever, 
we all know that they impact our purchasing decisions, but parents also impact kids' behaviors and tastes drastically, right? So if a parent believes a brand is one they don't have to consistently avoid or be cautious of, they're going to trust that brand in the future. And building that trust through ethical marketing, you'll reap the rewards for years to come. Now, you could also argue that that's kind of manipulative too. And I think that's one part that is inherent is that there is no escaping marketing. Uh, well, there you go. That's why hey, it's just it's just not not right. Yes. Chad, did you uh, did you get a haircut? You look very, I did. Very short did. hair over there. <laughs> it's a quarantine cut. It's just like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I should be doing it the same at some point. I just don't really leave my house that much, you know, so didn't really see the point. <laughs> <laughs> so that was super interesting. It's really interesting to me to go back and re-listen to some of these episodes and just be reminded of the stories and also just the learnings from each of these episodes. So this was part two of our three-part series. Next week, we'll be back for the third and final part of our 2020 recap. So nice. definitely tune in next week for more of these condensed versions of our favorite podcast episodes. Great. Speak to you guys next week. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content. <laughs>